Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Space Boffins, hopefully without any rapid, unscheduled disassembly. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. I like what you did there. Uh, This time we're in conversation with NASA's new head of science, Dr. Nicola Fox, who grew up in the UK just a few miles from where we're recording this podcast in Leafy. And it is Leafy, Hertfordshire. And we'll chat about some of the 100 or so missions that Nicola is responsible for in just a moment. Plus, we'll meet one of the European Space Agency's most experienced astronauts, as well as one of ESA's new recruits, who's just started training and could end up on the moon. It's still a long way. I need to start my training. I need to be assigned to an ISS mission before even being on the queue to the missions to, to Mars. Uh, to Mars, to the moon, sorry. <laughs> Hold on there. <laughs> sorry. But yes, of course, it will be a dream come true to, to have this opportunity. That's Pablo. I love him already. He's great. He's so nice. He's so nice. He sounded lovely. Well, back in the December podcast, we spoke to NASA's outgoing head of science and good friend of the Space Boffins podcast, Thomas Zaburkin. Thomas was responsible for overseeing the turnaround of the James Webb Space Telescope through to a successful launch and now those incredible images, among other things, in a lustrous career so far. No, exactly. But if you want to hear more, yeah, do listen back to that uh, podcast because he's absolutely brilliant as always. Well, naturally, we thought it would be nice to meet his successor, particularly as she's from Hitchin, a small town just down the road from Space Boffins HQ. Well, Dr. Nicola Fox completed her PhD in space and atmospheric physics at Imperial College London. But it was a chance meeting that led her to NASA. Nicola, welcome to the Space Boffins podcast. We're absolutely delighted that you've got your new post and also that there's this amazing career route from Hertfordshire to Houston, effectively. Was this always part of your grand master plan? No, I don't think I ever had a grand master plan, actually. I think, you know, you you take your journey one step at a time and that's kind of what I did. You know, I never realised, honestly, that I could work for NASA. So when I was a child, you know, 
you think it's great, you want to be an astronaut, you want to, you know, study all these things, you think space is fascinating. But the idea of actually working for NASA, uh, honestly, never occurred to me until right before I moved. I was at a conference in Alaska when I was doing my PhD and I was talking about my work and a scientist just literally said, would you be interested in applying for a postdoc at NASA? And so I didn't, you know, just didn't know that was a possibility. Were you aware at the time that Hertfordshire has Airbus, which is now really well known for its spacecraft for various missions, including those that go to Mars? Yes, actually. You know, we used to be British Aerospace back in the day. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yes, then I think it became Astrium and then now Airbus. And so, yes, actually, one of the missions uh, that uh, we have in, uh, in the heliophysics division at NASA is Solar Orbiter, which is a partnership with ESA. And of course, the uh, spacecraft was actually built in Stevenage, just a few few miles away from my, my, where my parents live. And actually, my parents once went on a tour of the factory. They were so interested in it and, and wanted to learn more about it. Um, so yes, uh, we're, we're very familiar with that. So Hertfordshire taking over really in space, and, <laughs> and, and it's a it is a, a really a, a master plan to to take over over NASA and, and ESA. <laughs> One mission at a time. (laughs) (laughs) And and you joined NASA from Johns Hopkins University. You mentioned heliophysics there because you were involved with the Solar Parker probe. Yes. Coolest, hottest mission under the sun uh, is my hashtag for that. (laughs) But yes, um, I I worked for many, many, many years on Parker Solar Probe at the Applied Physics Lab, which is part of Johns Hopkins University. And I was lucky enough to be the project scientist, so the lead scientist for that mission. And it's it was amazing. Just I love the I'm, I'm kind of what we call an A to D junkie. So there are five phases of a mission, A through E, and E is when it's actually launched and, and taking the science. But probably B through D is where you're really doing the concentrated mission design and building the spacecraft and then launch comes at the end of phase D. And uh, so I, I really love that part. That's the way you're working with the engineers and you're sort of really, the mission is is taking shape and you're seeing it before your eyes actually becoming a real mission. I did that with, uh, with Parker Solar Probe and then three weeks after it launched, I went down to NASA headquarters uh, to, to run the heliophysics division. And they're really delivering, aren't they, those, those missions, Parker Solar probe and i mean solar orbiter it's starting to send back these incredible pictures of of the sun and, and delivering results and getting closer and closer all the time as its orbit changes Yes, Parker Solar Probe, um, just about a year and a half away from being an, in the final configuration when they're uh, below 4 million miles from the sun's surface, which is super close. And Solar Orbiter, golly, those images. So I saw one, I was at a conference last year, and they had some of their very detailed images. And it kind of started with a full disk image and then honed in on this really amazingly detailed image. I mean, it almost looked like driving down a sort of leafy lane in England with at, at sunset, you know, when everything's sort of gold and orange. And I, I literally was tearing up at thinking, you know, I can't believe we're looking at a star in this much detail. It, it was just amazing. So uh, yes, and the, having the partnership as well, having Parker Solar Probe doing the sort of in situ measurements while 
uh, solar orbiter is taking these phenomenal images is just a dream come true for solar scientists. I mean, to have the two missions together and, and even right now, solar orbiter just sort of lifting out of the ecliptic plane and starting to be able to look down on the poles or pretty soon they'll be able to look down on the northern pole of the sun. But while they're still in the same plane, we've been doing really great uh, collaborative science with both sets of in situ instruments. So the, the ones that we actually, you know, they're taking the measurements at the spacecraft bus. So very complementary sets and great science to do there. Uh, why is that mission and why are those missions so important? Uh, and, and can you get that across? Because obviously there's the sexy stuff like Moon and Mars and, and Jupiter, which we'll come on to. But I mean, you know, obviously it's our nearest star, but there's more to it than that, isn't it? Well, yes, but it is our nearest star, which I think is fascinating. I mean, the fact that we have a star in our backyard, and even though it is very difficult to go and study the sun up close, it took 60 years to develop the technology to actually be able to do that, but it is relatively easy to get to our star. It is extremely difficult to get to another star. So we can study our star up close, and we often say it's an average star, which makes it sound really boring. But the, the reason that it's an average star the thing that makes it so exciting is it's an average star that actually sustains life. And so we live here on the planet. We live in this sort of Goldilocks region where we're not too hot, we're not too cold, we're not too close, we're not too far away. We're just in this perfect region where life can be sustained. And so our star is a very extraordinary, ordinary star. It's one that is sustaining life. And so by understanding our star and our planet's relationship with it, we can then go on to look for other possible habitable zones in other galaxies. And that for me is just amazing. I totally agree with you about that phrase, average star. I loathe it. And it really, <laughs> really irritates me. Now you're going to be um, directing the science for about 100 missions, I read, as, as part of your job. How are you going to prioritise those missions, you know, least of all the logistics of it in terms of science? And and will you suddenly find that the, the ones related to the sun are always at the top of your pile? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I love all my children equally. Um, and obviously, I mean, Parker Solar Probe is going to be close to my heart because I, I was the lead scientist on it. I had a relationship with, you know, very, very sort of close mentored relationship with Eugene Parker. And he was there at the launch and I got to be the first one to show him all the data when it, when the data came down. And, and um, you know, I gave his laureate lecture. Sadly, he passed away before he was able to to do his Crawford Prize. So that one's always got a special place in my heart. I mean, there's, that's that's never going to change. Um, but I'm we have so many exciting missions coming up. One that I'm particularly excited about right now is actually coming back to Earth. And uh, that's the OSIRIS-REx mission and it's returning samples. They'll they'll arrive September 24th of this year and we'll be able to actually start studying an asteroid. And this asteroid is really interesting because it's a very old asteroid. It's a carbaceous asteroid. So it's full of carbon. Um, and it, it was around at the time that our solar system was forming. And so we think it's got sort of the precursors of planet formation and maybe what it takes to sustain water. And and also, it's a, an asteroid that in, um, I think it's the next century, could be on a collision course with, or certainly have a very close call with our planet. And so learning what that um, asteroid is made of means that we can actually think about a, a 
future, obviously way in the future, but a future impactor mission like the DART mission that um, recently or last year knocked the, uh, the, the, the dual asteroid system, Diamorphos, off, you know, changed its orbital period and actually changed its trajectory. That's one mission returning, returning samples. And we're going to learn all that from, from one mission. Um, also, later this year, we have the Psyche mission that is also going to an asteroid, but this one's going to a heavy metal asteroid. So it's going to be looking at uh, the things that if, if in, in the future we actually wanted to travel outside our solar system, we would have to, to look for, for sustained things that we could sustain our journey, we'd be looking for um, heavy metals and things that are on asteroids. So there's two missions I'm excited about, and they're both asteroid missions and nothing to do with the sun. <laughs> Just talk us through the re- the return to Earth, because, I mean, that's not, you, you, you make it sound quite casual, it's just going to return to Earth, but there, there's, you know, there's quite a lot to that. There is actually, there's a lot to sample return in general, um, which will bring me to, the, to a, a Martian mission in a minute. But uh, yes, I mean, it's, it, the mission design is exquisite and you you learn a total appreciation for if you work with some of these engineers by the way they'll say oh it's just orbital dynamics you're like yeah that's greek to me um you know so it's it's just it, it's it's like an art form that these these folks do that do the mission design and figure out when you need to fire the thrusters when you want if you're flying by a planetary ob- object and using it for a gravity assist i mean this is all very very carefully planned before the mission launches and so osiris rex flew out to the asteroid bennu and then yeah, basically had to do a touch sample collect the samples, bring it back, close up the sample container, and then propel that back to Earth. So so it is ex- extremely precise, pre- sort of precision science and engineering. But it, it gives us the doing this kind of mission gives us some sort of experience as we get ready to go to Mars and return the samples from there. So if you have been uh, paying attention to our Perseverance rover that has been roving around on Mars, uh, you can log in and see where Percy is on on any particular day. And uh, also how our helicopter is is flying as well. It's uh, just completed 50 flights of, uh, that was a tech demo. Um, So Ingenuity, uh, lovingly called Ginny for short and so you can you can follow kind of the progress there and I, I always feel like when I look at those images it's like getting a postcard you know so um, some I, I've been asked a couple of times if you could travel to a planet which one you would would you go to and I keep saying it would be Mars because I feel like I know so much about it it's like you've watched a documentary on TV and you've seen the travel play you know a destination that's that's really exotic and you think golly I really want to go to Bora Bora you know because you've seen these things and then um, you see all these postcards from Mars and you think I want to go see that. Anyway, so while Percy has been roving around, it's an amazing, uh, amazing piece of technology, but it has a sample arm, comes down, collects samples, uh, and has been collecting them in very different locations uh, around this particular area of Mars. So getting different soils and rocks and different types of samples. And they've laid down 10 of these sample tubes on the Martian surface, which is our sort of our first cache. Uh, Percy is continuing to go off and uh, collect more samples. And then uh, we are in the very, very early stages of designing a sample return mission, which is extremely complicated. Uh, so you have to you know, send, um, there's, there's going to be an orbiting piece of it that will just orbit around Mars. Um, there'll be a lander piece that comes down. And then just, just imagine the technology of having to program something to, to to 
reach out and pick up a, a, a sample tube, put it into a container, seal the container, launch the container off the, the surface of Mars. We've never launched anything off another planet. Rendezvous with the orbiting spacecraft and then um, you know, have that, uh, the, the, the sample return capsule will then be expelled and sent back to Earth. So it's, it's kind of, even I, in my, in, in my position, am amazed about how complicated this mission is. I had a five hour briefing on this mission last week and it, and it was not boring. It was supposed to be four hours. I, I extended it by an hour because it was so interesting. And that we, there's still more to learn just about the just the, the exquisite engineering that it will take to do that so there you are all those all those missions i haven't mentioned the sun once <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell how excited you are about about Percy and Mars. Oh, yes. What about Artemis? Because obviously that's um, something that loads of people are talking about at the moment, very interested in, not least because the um, crew for Artemis 2 have been announced. Is the science that's going to be done on these missions, is, is that sort of slightly lower down the, the, the priority scale? No, um, it's an amazing, I mean, honestly, we take advantage of any any way to do science. And so uh, working with our exploration colleagues, and it really is science for exploration, exploration for science, and designing the science that we will do either on the missions that will proceed the astronauts getting there. Uh, we have a commercial lunar partnership. Um, so we're, it's a, called Eclipse program for commercial lunar payload services. And so we have some commercial landers and we're, they're carrying NASA science instruments uh, that will land ahead of any crew. We have rovers going up. We have actually a hopper that's going to hop around on the surface of the moon, which is really cool. And uh, and then we have the the gateway, the lunar gateway, which is basically the sort of support habitat for the crew. Um, we've put some science instruments on there. They're actually heliophysics instruments. They're going to be studying space weather because uh, the moon is a great place to study space weather because it, it actually orbits around the Earth. And so sometimes you're in the pristine solar wind and sometimes you're in that uh, magnetotail, that sort of protective magnetic bubble behind the planet. And so we can study all kinds of space weather from there. And provide um, space weather forecasts for the crew. Uh, but really designing what the astronauts are going to do while they're up there is incredible. Because if you think it's really hard to bring samples back, now that does, samples back on, on the planet are worth more than you can believe. I actually uh, was just at Johnson Space Center. I went out for the crew announcement and I got to go to the Apollo lab where they have all of the samples from the Apollo missions oh, and they are right. still using them. They are still still giving us new science 50 years after the last sample was taken. Um, so we recently uh, grew little plants or little, um, I can't remember exactly what they were, but we grew them in the in the lunar regolith. So, you, you know, all these things you can do with samples. But if, if you have experiments that the astronauts can do on the surface of the moon, you don't even have to bring the samples back. So there's a lot of science that we actually want them to do while while they're up on the planet. Also, all the, the new tools that they'll be taking up with them to uh, to enable easily take samples, seal them, vacuum, vacuum seal them, make sure that they're, they're in pristine when they get back to Earth. But it, it's just amazing. And then, you know, sneakily thinking about, OK, once we've once we've uh, got a sustained presence on the moon, it's on to Mars. And so what are our astronauts going to do when they get to Mars? So um, it's a fabulous time to be in the agency and to be working in and around NASA, partnering, as I said, with our commercial partners, partnering with 
international agencies, a close partnership with ESA, in fact, on the Mars sample return mission. They are building the, uh, the, the orbiter. I actually think it might even be it's definitely Airbus. I'm not, it might even be Stevenage that's building it. I have to, oh. to check on that. Um, I think yes. it is. And uh, so back to Hertfordshire we go. <laughs> and we're putting uh, the, the uh, sample return capsule will be on that ESA, ESA module where NASA will build that. Um, and then ESA is providing hardware for the lander. So it's a really, really tightly coupled partnership, allowing us to do all this great exploration um, as one, one big happy family. <laughs> Sounds it. Um, uh, wh- where do you stand then on the the humans versus robots, or would you prefer humans to do it because they can do so much more than the robots? It is a so it, uh, it's a fabulous partnership between the two. I mean, you can send robotic missions where you can't send people clearly, um, but people can make. You know, you have to pre-program the robotic missions. Um, some some do have you have the ability to change certainly with perseverance because you can see what it's doing you can actually sort of program more in real time but um, astronauts can can do they can do skills that that it's very hard to get robots to do so it is a perfect world where we have both of them you know you have um, spacecraft orbiting around Mars sampling the you know the atmosphere around Mars seeing how the solar wind is impacting Mars. Uh, communications relays, sending back all the data from the surface of Mars, those rovers going all over the place, um, helicopters flying now, uh, but but are still a very big role for, for humans as well. Now, we interviewed your predecessor a few times, actually, on the Space Boffins podcast, Thomas Seberkin. Uh, he had a major challenge when he took on the role, and that was sorting out the, the James Webb Space Telescope and, and getting it working, and what a success that is proving to be. What's your biggest challenge, or is everything in, in pretty good state with a pretty pretty good plan, or are there things that worry you? On your, would you're on your top of your to-do list with a big star <laughs> on, basically? Yeah. Well, so first of all, thank you, Thomas, for launching uh, James <laughs> Webb before you left. That was great. Um, but <laughs> Mars sample return is an extremely high priority. You know, it's an agency priority, uh, finding the way to to make sure we can do that mission, uh, bring those samples back. Many, many reasons we want to do that. Also, it is it is really the precursor to sending crew to Mars because when you you have to be able to land safely and take off safely from the planet. And so doing that with the samples is is definitely a, a risk reduction for for sending human missions so that is a very high agency priority to to do that but also our earth system observatory so protecting our planet uh, doing those sort of continuity measurements um, making sure we always have the measurements that you need to be able to um, you know follow storms follow uh, uh, tornadoes follow hurricanes follow uh, you know big storms that are they're going to happen monitoring wildfires uh, looking at how pollution changes over the day um, looking at sea level uh, looking at the ice sheets um, all those things we have an earth system observatory um, and we and the important thing is that we need to fly many missions at the same time to really characterize the planet and so that's a big challenge um, getting missions high quality missions you know we we think of our earth sciences we're nasa's really on the cutting edge you know we do the we fly the first of a kind technology we do the first of a kind science we we have these amazing high fidelity models that we produce but then we want to actually hand them over to people to use them in an operational way so um it's it's i think of us kind of as the tip of the spear you know we do the same with space 
weather. We we make the we can fly the first of a kind measurements. We can look at the ones that really make the difference to your ability to predict things. And so that you know that's what we want to do. So so really getting all those earth science missions, getting our arms around those, getting those well on their way and and launched, and then uh, making Mars sample return you know a reality. So they're my two highest priorities. It's lovely the fact that, you know, we've gone from a Swiss-born science director to a British-born woman in the post. You'll be the first woman, the first Brit in, in this post. We know that Thomas, as often the case with NASA, you know, is extremely good on the outreach and um, also prioritised encouraging diversity. How are you going to build upon that aspect of, of your job? I'll just say I'm actually the second woman to uh, to have the post. Oh, Mary Cleave. No, 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 fine. Uh, the fabulous Mary Cleave uh, was an astronaut mm. and she held it, oh, I, I'm not sure, maybe 15 years ago, maybe more than that, actually. Uh, well, uh, it was from a newspaper article. I read that. So naughty, naughty article that they said you're the first woman. <laughs> no, that's fine. I am the first Brit. That is true. That's not necessarily diversity, though, is it? That's, that's probably not a NASA target. <laughs> How many Brits can we get? Absolutely. It would be Absolutely. from our point yes, of view. Yes, it would. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's different perspectives, different backgrounds. And so that really actually is, I mean, embracing diversity in every sense of the word and inclusion. I mean, without inclusion, you'll never really have diversity. And diverse teams are always the strongest. If you have people that think alike, look alike from the same background, you, you'll get the same. That's all you ever get is the same. And so bringing in new ways of thinking, new perspectives, new backgrounds into mission teams is always really important. But really fostering an environment where everybody feels included and feels that they can take part. And so one of my goals really is lowering the lowering the boundaries to space and to science in general so that more people realize that Everyone really is a scientist. Every time you ask why, you're a scientist. If, if you're curious about anything, that's some kind of science. That's a scientific method. And so making a, an environment where people really feel that um, whatever they're interested in, whatever their passions are, it's linked to science. It's linked to space most of the time. Um, you know, we have an uh, initiative called the Heliophysics Big Year. So I'm just going to, okay, so here's sun for a moment. Um, and, <laughs> and that's because we're, we're about to kick it off in October. There are two uh, solar eclipses that will be uh, visible from the US. One in October of this year, it's an annular solar eclipse. So that's when you get like a ring of fire around the sun. And then in April of next year, we get a total solar eclipse. And so we're building this sort of focused campaign around certain solar and heliophysics activities. So Aurora, we're going to be coming up to solar maximum when the, the sun is the most active. Parker Solar Probe, just about a year and a half away from their closest close approach. Um, and so building on this idea of putting all these events together and talking about science in general and, and trying to appeal to, to even subcultures. So if you're interested in cooking, if you if you boil pasta, you see the convection that goes up. That's what happens on the sun. You know, we, we're sort of playing with the idea of solar flares and people who are into fashion. And if you have, you know, 27 pieces of flare or you wear your bell-bottom pants or whatever it is, there's so much in fashion that links to space and there's so much in in ev everything you do music art it's there's there's so much that links to space and so we're trying to use this to just 
really encourage more people to just think I can get involved. There's a big um, emphasis on citizen science. On um, We've got a tremendous group of citizen scientists that use all of our NASA data and they use it and they do great science with it. They don't. You don't need a PhD, you just need to be curious and you just need to be driven um, to, to do more. So that's kind of, that, that's my, my passion to get people talking about science. Science isn't scary. You do not have to be a super duper smart you know, boffin to be able to do to do <laughs> science. Everybody does science all the time. Nice use of the word boffin. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I just have a quick shout out um, before a question from, from Sue for marmalade, because I make marmalade every year and I take pictures of it, of it. And when it's boiling away, it looks exactly Please. like those yes. videos that Easter have sent like the of the sun. Oh, you exactly probably like set off a conspiracy theory now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah I, did, I just I just wondered, um, Nicola, that um, you know what your inspiration was, because for often for people of a a certain age, you know they always cite the the moon landings. But you were born the year of the moon landings, so unless you were a child prodigy, <laughs> you have no no memory of it at the the time. So what was it that just gave you that spark to look up? into the sky and wonder. So I was nine months old or eight or nine months old when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon and uh, my dad picked me out of my my cot and took me and propped me up in front of the TV and gave me a running commentary. So he says that that is why I'm interested because clearly, <laughs> clearly I, I picked up all that information at that early He's age. taking the credit, um, yes. <laughs> But he was always fascinated with space and he would always, you know, look up at the moon and say, can you imagine people have walked up there, you know, and that sort of feeling he was fascinated by all things space, uh, by all things NASA. And he would often say, Do you know, there must be nothing better in the world than to work for NASA, you know, whenever he saw a, a rocket launch or anything like that. So I kind of grew up with that idea. Um, and then my mom was just very driven and very, um, you know, quietly determined that she may not herself have wanted to walk on the moon, but she was damn sure I was going to have every every opportunity I needed if I wanted to. And so, you know, I think from from both of them, my mom was just you can do this. Even when I doubted myself, you know, there was once where I said, oh, I don't think I'm going to pass my exams. I think I should drop out. And she said, well, why don't you just go and take them anyway? Because you studied for them now. And then we'll, then we'll have the information and we can make a decision after that. And I did pass them. So it was, you know, good, good old mum. But um, it, that, that sort of nurturing background with my dad's um, fascination of all things space. That's great. I love that. That's a, a very good combo and um, a real insight into not just how you've got to where you've got today, but just from hearing your enthusiasm, we can sort of totally understand why you are where you are today. And yes, on behalf of all uh, UK space fans, I think we can all say thank you <laughs> for for that. Rich, do you have a final word for our, our Dr. Fox? Let's face it, Dr. Fox. It feels like you should have your own podcast with that name, Dr. Fox. <laughs> you could do a joint pod, Dr. Z and Dr. Fox. Dr. Z and Dr. We Fox. We could, yes. yes. It's, it's yes. just so yeah. good. I mean, I guess just the final one really is, do you sense there's a a buzz about space uh, right now. I mean, I know with Artemis, but everything else, I mean, I'm just looking at the the papers in the UK, I, I would say there is not a day where there isn't a story about space in some form. And I would say that 95% of those are, are positive stories for, for uh, yes. what's going on. Yeah, I think there really is a big buzz. Uh, part of it is just with um, 
much more commercial space opening up uh, uh, access to space, um, you know, looking at the number of launches that we have, um, looking at just the technology and the way it's been really pushed forward in an incredibly aggressive way to, to really move us to where we need to be. Selecting astronauts to go back to the moon. I mean, I, I, was, I was there when they actually went out and I was there when they, when they announced the astronauts. And yeah, I was doing the tears and the everything else, you know, because it's just so inspirational to see to see this and and even you know I, I NASA is an amazing place to work just because I think everybody does have this sort of shared purpose and this shared goal and and you are doing the impossible you know the impossible today is done tomorrow and that kind of thing and and um, the the previous administrator Jim Bridenstine uh, told a lovely story about being at Kennedy Space Center and he was walking around and uh, Jim was would often stop people and chat and just ask them what they did you know and he stopped this guy and he said what do you do and he said I am working to put the uh, the next people on the moon sir and he said oh that's great what do you do and he said i'm a custodian but that was the amount of passion he felt that everything he did was moving us forward to be able to do these amazing things and i think everybody in the agency feels like that and it's it's just it there is a buzz there is a buzz at nasa there's like a new energy at nasa and i love to see it just rippling through everybody and as you say, it's mostly really happy news. It's hopeful. It gives people hope that we can do the, we can do these amazing things. So, so yes, I do. Dr. Nicola Fox, NASA's new head of science, or in NASA speak, associate administrator for NASA's science mission directorate, uh, and she was <laughs> yes, ludicrous. Uh, she was, as you can hear, lovely, and uh, what a brilliant science communicator, and of course, boffin. Yes, I love the fact that she was going to embrace that word, um, particularly uh, what happened while we were on holiday, wasn't it? We we we've been in Greece since our, our last in Greece. <laughs> Egypt. I knew it's a country. I knew it was warm. I was thinking Egypt. It came out Greece. So you, what you thought the whole time we were in Greece? <laughs> yes. I wonder why those those really odd sort of pyramid structures just thought, that's not Delphi. But um, yeah, no. And while we were there, there was in the UK, one of the uh, newspapers, Daily Star, had this sort of campaign and they contacted us because... Somebody, was it a scientist? The Institute of Physics, which Institute has form on this. So the yeah. Institute of Physics, uh, but, but actually it's first, the first time they tried this was 20 years ago, a campaign against the term boffin. Yes. Which, you know, as, as you will know, listening to the Space Boffins podcast is a sort of slang term for scientists, but it's a very British sort of term for scientists. And they then uh, very recently put out another report that says the term boffin is is old-fashioned and we should get rid of it. So the Daily Star newspaper contacted us, one of uh, Britain's finest tabloid newspapers, and uh, so we gave a couple of quotes. And there is a brilliant picture of Sue in the Daily Star, um, which is because the picture of Sue and it says in big letters underneath, nerd. Yeah, and it's like I'm an out-and-out nerd. What, What I liked about it was the fact that it's now my profile on Twitter, actually, that picture because the the sort of font and the colours they used it was sort of I think it was yellow outlined with red or something like that it made it look like a sort of Batman style kapow or wham or so it it looked very cartoony it was just 
utterly ridiculous. So uh, yeah, we've uh, so we've both been quoted in the Daily been Star. Quoted in, I think we we can just stop Let's retire now. now. Yeah, that's, it. that's mm. it. But it's funny, isn't it? Because I know Americans when we first started the podcast, which was 2011, uh, uh, American listeners said, "What does boffin mean? What you know? Mm. Is is that why are you using this word boffin?" Uh, but it was well known here, and and our theory at the time was, um, you know, having work, worked in a newsroom at the BBC, one of the things that always used to happen to me was that people would just say, uh, editors would just say, oh, I need a story. And it didn't matter whether it was, you know, on botany or it was a space story, it was physics or it's chemistry. They just said, can you get me a boffin? And at first it used to irritate the hell out of me. And then a bit like the word geek, or nerd, you know, actually it was before we set up Boffin Media as well, we just thought, let's just embrace this. You know, why is it always seen in some cases as a negative thing uh, and just see it as good? And yeah, and the words geek have been transformed. It's like, who cares? It's geek chic, you know, and nerd is is, is cool. Well, obviously in our circles it is. <laughs> something. And I think Boffin's the same. Yeah. Embrace it. If you're smart, you know something about a subject, you don't have to have a degree in it. You're a boffin. And as I told the Daily Star, there's something brilliantly British about being a boffin. It is indeed. Yeah. It's, I mean, if no, you're it is. American it's, it's, and you want a, to yeah. be a boffin, yeah. you can. So, so we're, we're out and proud we as are. boffins. Absolutely. Anyway, back to um, oh, Nicola. Dr. Nicola Fox. Yeah. Oh, I love to say, fabulous that she's yeah. called herself a boffin. She mentioned um, two eclipses, mm. which is great, because we are hopefully going to be at the annular eclipse which is october the 14th i think we're going for new mexico aren't we or hopefully to, to get there because that would be not good greece. weather not greece or egypt even yeah, yeah. and then we're also going to try and go to the one next year which is the solar total solar eclipse also in the u.s which goes right across the other side of the states on the east coast and that actually goes over where wally funk lives in dallas texas so i'm hoping to be there with Wally for the, for that one, but um, that's in what April twenty twenty four. Yeah, it's yeah. April the eighth. Yeah. Uh, the annual eclipse is October the fourteenth, and I saw on Twitter that um, quite a few people that we follow, the space boffins follow, and um, uh, went well. And Tim Peak, in fact, um, Tim Peak had gone to the recent solar eclipse in Exmouth. Uh, Western Australia. Yeah, because it was because we were in a sort of very quite small area. You had to be in a very specific yeah, point, didn't yeah. you? To I mean, that, have a good chance of that, seeing that's, it. That's determination. <laughs> I was quite impressed with the people who'd uh, made their way there. But you know, people know who've been to an eclipse before that it is unforgettable. And if you ever get the chance, do. But more recently, you've probably seen a, within the UK. Well, actually, not just within the UK. There've been some amazing. Aurora opportunities. My, I subscribed to the Aurora Watch app ever since we we were in um, Finland, um, uh, because obviously you th- your chances of seeing <laughs> the auroras yeah, in Finland really are pretty app, good. Pretty, you know, that's true. App, just look out the Finland's window. Finland's in winter if it's yeah, clear. Yeah, it's fabulous. Yeah, but you chance. definitely need it in the UK. And we were with um, friends in the pub, and um, my phone flashed up and it said Aurora and. It wasn't just our friends. It was you as well looked at me as if to say, what are you doing? Because I got all excited and said, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's red. It's red. And it's for the red for the whole of the UK. Now, that hardly 
ever happens that an aurora well, while the rain splashed yeah, against the pub windows that is the yeah. downside of it is but i have seen you know i saw some photos on twitter of people in scotland and people in you know near stonehenge and actually some great ones from like kansas as well people saying oh my goodness we you know this is wonderful and people from quite far south people in the ukraine ukraine as well and the the colors the pinks and the greens and the reds Ah, all all above the clouds above our heads, sadly. But um, obviously, the the sun's going through some activity. So yeah, get onto those apps because it's great to get get uh, a notification and, and let you know. And you can always set your alarm, which is what, as you know, I always do yeah, at like three o'clock three in, the in the morning to watch a meteor shower that never happens. Why, why do all astronomy cloudy. events take place at <laughs> three o'clock in the morning? Well, I think it's more the UK, isn't it, the mm. weather? But yeah, never mind, never mind. And, and we must say thank you to Thomas, by the way, for because um, it was Thomas who put us in touch with um, Nicola Fox uh, immediately by email and said some really nice things about us and said uh, you two should get together but we love you Thomas this is Space Boffins we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists get in touch on Facebook or Twitter we have no blue tick there aren't any blue ticks anymore nor gold Uh, ticks there are no they're gold now aren't they are they yeah gold gold but I thought people who refuse to pay for blue ticks have now suddenly find they've found they've got oh they've got blue ticks, ticks. oh um, well, that's disappointing but Beyonce hasn't got a blue tick no exactly well, we're like maybe, well she might have one by the time this know, goes yeah. up she may well have one oh, well, so I was quite proud that like Beyonce we didn't, we didn't have a blue tick anyway it is us at Space Boffins uh, it's also a vast archive of 12 years worth of Space Boffins on the Naked Scientist website including a great interview last month with one of the senior scientists on the JUICE mission now on its way to Jupiter Michelle Doherty I mean two big launches in the last month the juice mission which i mean which went off 24 hours late but it went off all perfect that was astonishing that it's going all the way to jupiter pinging around the solar system with a one second launch window (laughs) absolutely astonishing and then with a rather longer launch window that i mean Uh, watching Starship kind of drag itself off the launch pad with those 33 engines. I just thought that is extraordinary It felt very slow. I mean, often when you see rockets launch, whether live or in, in, you know, on TV or your laptop or whatever, or in person, it does seem incredibly slow. But that one just seemed like it was on on slow-mo, didn't it? It Yeah, but I remember, I mean, when you look at the Apollo, that amazing Apollo, 11 film mm. how slowly the Saturn oh, yes. V rockets similarly yeah. I think it's only when you have the solid rocket boosters on them which are just like lighting fireworks that they they do go up go off a lot faster mm-hmm. but actually even the Ariane 5 with the juice mission it's pretty slow to start yes, with then... as it gets that momentum up but yeah the Starship did seem very very slow mm-hmm. and I, I think it's fair to call it a success yeah. you know it, it was just the separation didn't work and then they really had to destroy it because it was out of control but just, I mean, that is going to be phenomenal. And, and I like what you did with the opening theme tune there. I oh, think that you. little 10, 9, thank 8 you. thing. As you know, I always get a little bit, oh, you've changed it. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? 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 Leave it, leave it. But I did, I yeah, actually like that. have to that. change it again No, next month, no. <laughs> we can't probably leave. Well, maybe we could leave that in a few months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, you yeah. might as well. But anyway, no, I, I think Starship's astonishing. I hope it all works because it's going to be the lander, the, at least the, the upper stage, the lander for Artemis Three to the moon 
Uh, and what's really interesting about that, I, I wrote a feature on this recently, and NASA are not giving much away on this because they clearly haven't finished negotiations. That starship is capable of holding 100 people. Now, I'm not suggesting NASA are going to land 100 people on the moon, but you could fit an awful lot of stuff in that lander, potentially. You could have a nice habitation in that lander, potentially. So there's all sorts of things NASA could you do with that. Bathroom. Exactly, you could. You could actually go back to the... Or oh, like Skylab, you yes, could exactly have a shower. shower the the <laughs> yeah. worst space invention ever. Um, but yeah, you could. so you could do quite a lot with that. It's got huge potential. So I think the upper stage, I mean, the, the mm. bottom stage, the lower stage with those engines all firing together, no one's attempted that since the Soviet Union with the um, their moon rockets, which didn't work, to have that all coordinating together is astonishing technology but then the upper stage too just the capacity of that whether you're launching satellites or carrying people is astonishing so yeah i mean let's hope it all it all comes together and also it it's nice to see again the sort of boundaries of what we can do within space on earth being pushed and stretched and tested um, because it's been stationary for well it was stationary for a very long time um, and then the advances were made primarily in certain areas particularly satellites and it's just wonderful to 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 have something that's refreshingly different yeah no it's um it's it's great well i hope it all all succeeds and uh, Elon Musk doesn't lose too much money on Twitter, on Twitter. in the meantime. <laughs> yes, I think we'll keep away from that, shall we? Mm. Uh, in the meantime, in November, you may recall, ESA announced its new astronaut corp. Well, this month, those lucky men and women began training. Uh, one of those new recruits is Pablo Alvarez from Spain, who has quite a connection with the UK as he's worked here for several years with Airbus, including on the ExoMars rover. Well, we met for a chat in Germany recently at a showing of three European service modules for the Artemis mission. That's so hard to say, isn't it? Artemis missions. Artemis missions at Airbus. And it's an understatement to say that he had quite a grin on his face at the thought of what lies ahead. I am extremely happy that I, I've given this opportunity, uh, the, the chance to become an astronaut, and uh, I'll, I'll make the most of every minute. And what's really nice is that we're in Airbus in Bremen, and you've worked at Airbus in, in Stevenage, where I've been a, a lot in the Mars yard there and interviewing scientists there. You know, how does it feel knowing that your experience as an engineer is now you're going to see things the other side of the fence effectively. It feels great uh, and I think it also gives me the um, security and the safety that uh, everything is, is that is done at, at Airbus at an engineering level is really at uh, it excels. It's a top level technology. And you have that inside view. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, because we, we really take care of every little detail. So, you know, I'm, I'm ready to jump in the spacecraft at any, any moment if, <laughs> if I had the chance. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? It does give you that um, reassurance. Was it a tough process to get to the stage? Uh, it was very tough. It was very long. It lasted for over 18 months and it had several stages, uh, many, many, many good candidates, uh, excellent. And many of them were left behind for different reasons. 
but uh, yeah, very, very hard. The selection process itself was the hardest bit. You know, the waiting after every stage to get an answer, either positive or negative, mm-hmm. whilst still trying to prepare for the next one, yeah. it's very, very hard. Like always, you know, all these questions, how do you, like, well, did I, did, did I do good enough? Why did I say that? Oh, I should have answered this other thing, or why, you know, I should have prepared this better, and this this was probably the hardest, uh, waiting for a good answer for, from Isa. And what were you doing when you found out that you'd, you'd passed? I uh, was working. Unfortunately, I was working from home that day, so uh, I could uh, scream of happiness freely. Uh, I was alone at home, and... And luckily also because the director general told us not to tell anyone and we had to keep the secret for uh, 12 days. And that would have been harder if you'd been in work because yes. they probably would have heard you go, yes. Yes, yes, everyone will have known. <laughs> but I went, yes, I screamed. And then I I did, okay, I cannot celebrate it with anyone because I, what do I do? So I, I went back to work. <laughs> so where are you working for Airbus at the moment and, and what are you working on? So at the moment I was working in Madrid as a project manager for actually for aircraft. So I had moved out of the space division. But before that I, I used to work as a mechanical architect for the ExoMars rover, Rosalind Franklin and Stephen H. A great time, mm-hmm. four years, three years and a half over there. And before, I used to work in Bristol also as a structural engineer for several aircraft. So I've I've been in England for for quite a while. And obviously got an amazingly exciting phase ahead. At the the same time, it's it's like a marathon. It's, It's a long haul. How do you mentally prepare yourself for... Or something like that, which compared to the waiting in the selection process could be ten times worse. Because you you could f- fly to the ISS in a couple of years, it could be seven years. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm glad you make that comparison because I was doing it myself uh, the other day. And so far the selection process has been only like signing up for that marathon. And now I have to start running it and it will be long. Um, I think the selection teaches you how to be patient and, and flexible and, and to learn that, you know, especially nowadays we are used to get everything immediately. Uh, it doesn't work with the space. Uh, yeah, it can be in four years from now, it can be in seven years or ten years or, I don't know, maybe I will never get an opportunity. It's, uh, it's also a possibility, but uh, anyways, I'm ready to commit myself to, to make the, the best and... and do the best training I can. And how do you feel about the fact that humanity is returning to the moon? You know, something that will have happened before you were born. I think it's uh, great that we are finally going back and uh, we are ready to develop all the science and technology technology there in the moon to actually try to go even farther. When we explore the Antarctica for the first time, Scott and Asmussen, uh, they had his they race, like similar to the one with the United States and, uh, and uh, Soviet Union, and they, we didn't come back to the Antarctica until 50 years later. Uh, similar story with the moon. I think that now uh, we are more technologically advi- advanced and uh, we are ready to actually have a permanent present presence in the moon and see what scientific discoveries it brings uh, us back to the earth and have you spent much time with your fellow trainees yet 
we were actually locked for four days near Paris before the announcement, so uh, I had the chance to meet all of them there. But I have to say that at least uh, half of them I I knew before because uh, during the selection process, of course, we we were all in contact. We had several uh, WhatsApp groups in which we, you know, yeah. how, did, how did you go? Discussions, yeah. <laughs> how uh, do you know anything? Have you had anything? Uh, how do you do here? And so it was quite uh, quite interesting and. Uh, the, the good thing about this selection process is that it allowed me to, to know so many amazing individuals that uh, I'm, I'm still in, in touch with. And, and of course, the 17 that were selected at the end, uh, well, I think we'll, we are quite close already and we have regular meetings to set everything up. Going to the moon is very different to being on the ISS. It's potentially longer term in the future. Would you take that opportunity? Of course, and uh, it's still a long way. I need to start my training. I need to be assigned to an ISS mission before even being on the queue to the missions to, to Mars. But, to Mars, to the moon, sorry. <laughs> Hold <laughs> on there. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but yes, of course, it will be a, a dream come true to, to have this opportunity. Well, best of luck, and we'll be looking forward to following your progress uh, with interest. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Astronaut trainee Pablo Alvarez. Now, you mentioned, um, we mentioned at the top of the podcast that he could be one of those people that go to the moon. And we've just heard how he's, uh, you know, up and ready. But obviously, he's got his ISS um, training to uh, and uh, placement to, to happen first. It must be very exciting for all those astronauts who are actually um, you know, doing their training right now as as we speak. Um, do you? Yeah, I know it's too early to sort of put money on. <laughs> sort of, who do you think uh, will go? But um, I, I know you're very keen on the UK's um, para astronaut, aren't you? Yeah, I, but I also think. Well, if, if you're going to, if I'm going to put money on who the first European astronaut to step, set foot on the moon will be, my money is on Matthias Myra because he is heading up the um, moon simulation facility at the European Astronaut Centre in, in Cologne. So he is going to know the most about walking around on the moon. He's a scientist as well, and he's due more missions. So that's who my money would be on. Ah, right. And, and I reckon his close competition then could be the person we're about to hear uh next it depends whether they jump a generation or not well yeah more experienced and we're talking about um german astronaut alexander guest yeah huge um experience Uh, pretty much a year uh he spent in space from being part of the blue dot mission in 2014 the horizons mission 2017 and then a third mission a year later when he was only the second European astronaut to be given command of the space station. Um, So (laughs) Alex uh, not only has his eyes on um, another mission, he's going to be helping 
those new recruits. So I'm going to still be an active astronaut in the European Astronaut Corps, but at the same time, uh, in between missions, what we astronauts typically do is we use our experience that we gained in space uh, to help out other programs or to help out colleagues. Like in my case, I'm going to be uh, the lead of the astronaut operations team at the European Astronaut Center, and that means I'm going to work with our new colleagues, the new astronauts that uh, will join ESA at the beginning of April to start basic training and I will make sure they have everything that they need to uh, be successful in basic training. At the same time, my team is responsible for the crew support of the astronauts flying to the space station. We have Andreas Morgensen flying to the space station this year with uh, with Crew 7, so we're going to take care of his family and help him to have a successful mission. And also in my team, there are the Eurocoms. Those are the communicators uh, between uh, the ground station and the uh, International Space station, in this case the Columbus module, and uh, their communicator team is also uh, in my group, so I'm going to make sure that they have all they need uh, for doing their uh, really interesting but also tough job. That's quite a wide brief, really. Um, In terms of your experience on the International Space Station, what would you say is the um, gift of advice you can pass on to the new recruits that you learnt not necessarily in the theory and being on the ground, but actually being in space. One thing that surprised me on all my missions is that I ended up being able to do much more than I thought I would. Uh, That is something I already learned when working in Antarctica five times, that uh, I always go out there having a concern, maybe I'm not able to do this or maybe I'm not able to do that because it's beyond my boundaries and then in the end it always turns out that it's actually um, amazingly uh, easy to to do that job and uh, I found that in in working in space too it's not I wouldn't say it's uh, completely easy all the time but it's uh, something that uh, was way easier than I anticipated and that's the, really the message that I want to give to the new recruits is that hey um, I'm sure that you guys can do this that they're going to be successful I'm very sure and to to encourage them and to to make sure that they they focus on the right things, right? That they, they don't have to be afraid of, of, of this, uh, what lies ahead of them, but uh, actually look forward in curiosity. And I can see this in them, so there's not much work for me to do. Really, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I see my role as, as being there um, to help them get what they need to do their job uh, properly. You're a geophysicist, yep. so you must have very specific reasons why you're interested in returning to the moon and what we can learn from the moon? Well, I wouldn't say it's uh, based on my own interest. Uh, I think in general it's very important that we go there. Uh, the moon is an open history book, right? You can find rocks there that are uh, older than 4 billion years. Uh, those rocks just don't exist anymore uh, on Earth in that way. And we, we can just read it, read them on the moon, whereas on, on, the, on the Earth they're gone. And so from the moon we can read about our early history. The moon came to existence probably out of Earth. We really don't even know that yet completely. That's uh, another reason. Uh, but also the moon allows us to look into the future. If we go there and study the the distribution of meteorite impact craters there, um, we can actually get a much better statistic on 
about how likely it is that uh, the moon gets hit and also Earth gets hit by one in the future. That's something that's uh, a little bit of a blind eye that we have, and that's something we need to work on in order to uh, prevent uh, maybe one hitting later by preparing for it in a, in a better way. One part of it is knowing what the chances are and, and you know how to protect our, our Earth and the cities uh, from that. And uh, in general, it's, it's, it's a little bit like discovering Antarctica um, as an, an undiscovered continent. The moon is, is just uh, three to five days of travel away. That's much closer than Antarctica was 100 years ago when going there was dangerous and expensive and people asked why do we need to go to this um, empty continent. And now uh, we know why. Uh, there's uh, lots of research uh, stations there in Antarctica. We literally discovered the ozone hole there. It's a climate archive. And the same will happen to the moon in 50 to 100 years from now. There will be many research stations there. And uh, I'm very sure someone at that stage will um, talk about why it was so important to go there by having discovered something that you and I today cannot even imagine. I was surprised to learn today that you're involved with the design relating to Gateway. Yes, that's my current job. It's actually very, very interesting because it allows me to use my experience that I gained from uh, pretty much one year living in space, uh, helping the designers of the new modules to, say, design a galley or a sleep station for the crew, the, the, basically the crew systems in general that uh, exist in IHAB, the windows, the cargo systems uh, in the Esprit module. Those are all things that can benefit the, from, of course, the, the experience from the engineers building them, but also from an astronaut having lived on the space station. So in synergy, we work together, and that's very great. I mean, it's, it's, I love that job because every day we, uh, we come up with new solutions, um, that synergy uh, between, between them and us, and uh, it actually uh, is, is, is a very, very, well, a good way of working because I learn a lot about their way of doing, and I think the outcome is going to be interesting. So I think the, the IHAB will be benefiting from the design of the International Space Station, but will be even better. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of us returning <clears throat> to the moon, you were at the, the launch of Artemis 1. Yes, correct. I, uh, I was lucky enough to witness Artemis 1 uh, launch into space. That was amazing to see. It took a, a few attempts and I, I was lucky enough to be there at the final attempt when it went on uh, 16th of November. The most powerful rocket uh, that's ever been launched to space and that was uh, a thing to see and not only to see but more actually to feel. And would you like to be one of those astronauts that get the opportunity to, to fly on an Artemis mission? Yeah, I could. I think you could ask any one of my <laughs> colleagues or myself. Uh, we would all say yes to that question. Of course, we would love to fly. Um, that's our job, and as astronauts, we, of course, we, we chose that profession because we are fascinated by space, and that's uh, one of the ultimate missions that you could fly on. So th there isn't going to be any tension then between you when you're working with the new recruits <laughs> and the fact that you think, oh, that could be my competition. No, it's actually really nice to work with a new uh, team of astronauts to, uh, to hand over some of the experience uh, to them. They will most likely fly to ISS to gain experience there. They uh, have a, a lot of time uh, with missions there. And, uh, and uh, at the same time, the experienced astronauts will do some of the Artemis missions. So uh, it's going to be busy times for the European Astronauts Corps. And so no competition there. 
ESA astronaut Alexander Gers. I've, I've got some fun facts for you about Alexander. How fun? I, How fun I are think they? they're really fun. I got them from the okay. ESA website, so I'm going to share them okay. with you. These are the ones that I stuck out to me. Okay. When he was at school, he was a volunteer firefighter, a Boy Scout leader, and a lifeguard. And he developed a new volcano monitoring technique when he was doing his master's. And as a geophysicist, he installed scientific instruments in Antarctica. Now, if that's not cool, you know when they always say, on your CV, have something, you know, that's a little surprising. You don't want it to be all... All work, work, work. It's got. It's got to be something different. You need something. I just think volunteer they're, firefighter. Oh, yes, but you know, they're always Antarctic. such overachievers, <laughs> aren't they? I <laughs> know, but that's just great. That's I mean, you great. know, if I'm going to name a quirky thing on my CV, it's what would that, it be? Oh, it, was, it would obviously be that I was once in a Barry Manilow backing choir. Oh, of course. I thought you were going to say you played the clarinet in no. a band. But uh, no, you're right, Barry Barry Manilow. Barry, Barry Manilow. <sighs> can't ever say it. Barry Manilow backing choir. Yeah. Mine. I was fourteen. But. Yeah, I yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, real Barry Manilow. It wasn't like a tribute Barry Manilow. It was the real Barry Manilow. <laughs> well, I can Royal say, Philharmonic. I can say you know I've I've driven a um, a an exact rep, replica of the Apollo lunar module with Gene Cernan outside the Science Museum in London. That's not bad. Trying to think if I've got any other quirky. I, as like you, being a journalist, I have met some. Yeah, quite it's just all secondhand, it, isn't it? It's just secondhand experiences. It's just like, oh yeah, you need something really, really cool. I'll think about it. See if I can think about it by this time next month. That's the Space Boffins podcast for April 2023. Just about. Uh, we'll be back next month. In the meantime, do get in touch. Social media, email. We're a podcast at spaceboffins.com. And uh, if you want to hear more from us, uh, we were guests in a recent Space and Things yeah, podcast. That's so nice, the Emily excellent and Space and Things Dave, podcast. It's really somewhat Kylie, controversial on, on Twitter. Well, not controversial. One person. Yeah. <laughs> Said uh, said some things. Yeah. 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 Anyway, have a listen. Yeah. Make a judgment yeah. for yourself. Yeah. It's it's really good and they're great. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for listening.